0: 61. Oil and Water. In other circumstances, I would be fascinated by this sand to the point of abandoning all other rational pursuits. What is it? Where did it come from? From Rhythm of War, page 13. Finally, at long last, Navani heard Kaladin's voice. I'm sorry, Brightness. He said, his voice transmitted via the sibling to Navani. I collapsed when I got back last night and fell asleep. I didn't intentionally keep you waiting. Upon arriving at the Chamber of Scholars in the morning, Navani had discovered, via the sibling, that she had slept through what had nearly been the end of their resistance. She had then waited several interminable hours to hear from the Windrunner. Don't apologize. Nivani whispered, standing in her now customary place, her hands behind her, touching the line of crystal on the wall as she surveyed her working scholars. Guards stood at the door, and the strange, insane fused sat in her place by the far wall, but no one interfered directly with Navani. You did what you had to, and you did well. I failed, Kaladin said. No. Navani said softly but firmly. "Hi, Marshal, your job is not to save the tower. Your job is to buy me time enough to reverse what has been done. You didn't fail. You accomplished something incredible, and because of it, we can still fight. His reply was long in coming. Thank you, he said, his voice bolstered. I needed to hear those words. They are true. Navani said. Given enough time, I'm confident I can flush the tower of the enemy's light, then instead prime it with the proper kind. It came down to the nature of stormlight, voidlight, and the way the sibling worked. Navani needed to take a crash course in light and figure out exactly what had gone wrong. Breaking the node seems to have made things worse, Kaladin said. Healing takes longer now. A fused hit me with a knife, and it took a good ten minutes before my stormlight fully healed the wound. I doubt that was due to the breaking of the node, Navani said. Raboniel was able to corrupt the sibling further before you stopped her. Understood. I do feel bad I couldn't protect the node. But brightness, I think doing so would be impossible. If the others get discovered, We'll have to destroy them, too. I agree, she said. Do what you have to do in order to give me more time. Anything else to report? Oh, right, Kaladin said. I couldn't get to the oath gates in time. I thought I'd be able to easily climb down to the ground floor, but it was a longer process than I imagined. You didn't fly? Those lashings don't work, brightness. I need to use adhesion to make handholds. I'll need to practice more, or find another way up and down, if you want me to try to reach the oath gates. Regardless, I did snatch some span reeds for you. Full sets, it turns out, twelve of them. Sill has been inspecting them, and she thinks she knows the reason they work. Brightness, the spren inside have been corrupted, like Renarin's spren. The rubies work on void light now, as you suspected and these spren must be the reason. Navani let out a long breath. This had been one of her guesses. She hadn't wanted it proven. If she needed to acquire corrupted spren, she was unlikely to be able to get any fabrials working without Raboniel knowing. Rest, she told Kaladin, and keep your strength up. I will figure out a path to reverse what is happening here. We need to warn Dalinar. Kaladin said. Maybe we could get half of one of these span reeds to him. I don't know how we'd accomplish that, Navani said. Well, I guess it depends on how far down the tower's defenses go. It's possible I could leap off a ledge, fall far enough to get outside the suppression, then activate my lashings, but that would leave you without access to a radiant. Honestly, I'm loath to suggest it. I don't know if I could leave considering how things are. Agreed, Navani said. For now, it's more important that I have you here with me. Keep watch for Lyft. The sibling has lost track of her, but she was awake, like you are. Understood, he said. Are you otherwise well? Do you have food? Yeah, I have another of my men helping me. He's not a radiant, but he's a good man. The mute, Navani guessed. You know Dabid? We've met. Give him my best. we Will do, Brightness. Really, though, I don't think I can rest. I need to practice climbing the outside of the tower. But even with practice, I'm worried I won't be fast enough. What if a node is discovered on the 40th floor? It would take me hours to climb that high. A valid worry, she said. I'll see if I can find a solution. Let's talk tomorrow around this time. Understood. She pushed off the wall and strolled through the room. She didn't want to be seen talking to herself. Surely the singers knew to watch for signs that someone was radiant. She conversed softly with Rushu, explaining her plans for the next phase of time-wasting. Rushu approved, but Navani felt annoyed as she moved on. I need to do more than waste time, Navani thought. I need to work toward our freedom she'd been formulating her plan. Step one was to continue making certain they didn't lose ground, and Kaladin would have to handle that. Step two was getting word to Dalinar. Now that she had span Reeds, perhaps she could find a way. It was the third step that currently concerned her. In talking to the sibling, Navani had confirmed a number of things she'd previously suspected the tower regulated pressure and heat for those living inside and it had once done a far better job of this along with performing a host of other vital functions most of that including the tower's protections against fused had ended around the recreants the time when the radiants had abandoned their oaths and the time when the ancient singers had been transformed into parchment their songs and forms stolen the actions of those ancient radiance had somehow broken the tower, and Raboniel, by filling the tower with void light, was starting to repair it in a twisted way. Navani felt smothered by it all. She needed to fix a problem using mechanisms she didn't understand, and indeed had learned about only days ago. She paced, massaging her temples. She needed a smaller problem she could work on first to give her brain some time away from the bigger problem. What was a smaller problem she could fix? Helping Kaladin move faster up and down through the tower? Was there a hidden lift that she could- Wait. A way for one person to quickly get up and down, she thought. Storms. She turned on her heel and walked to the other side of the room, suppressing as best she could- visible signs of her excitement. The junior engineer, Tomor, had survived the initial assault. Navani had him recalculating the math on certain schematics. She leaned down beside the young ardent and pointed at his current project, but whispered something else. That glove you made, she said, the one that you wanted to use as a single person lift, where is it? Brightness, he asked, surprised in the boxes, out in the hallway. I need you to sneak it out, she whispered, when you leave today. The singers let her lesser scholars move more freely than Navani. What else could they do? Force three dozen people to sleep in this room without facilities? A few of the key scholars, Navani, Rushu, Falalar, were always escorted, but the subordinates weren't paid as much attention. Brightness? Tomor said. What if I get caught? You might be killed, she whispered, but it is a risk we must take. irradiance still fights, Tomor, and he needs your device to climb between floors. Tomor's eyes lit up. My device? Stormblast needs it? You know he's the one? Everyone's talking about him, Tomor said. I thought it was a fanciful rumor. Bring such rumors to me, fanciful or not, Navani said. For now, I need you to sneak that glove out and leave it hidden somewhere it won't be discovered, but where Kaladin can reasonably retrieve it. I'll try, Brightness, Tomor said, nervous. But Fabriels don't work anymore. Leave that to me, she said. Include a quick sketch of a map to the location of the weights on the 20th floor, as he'll need to visit those, too. With the conjoined rubies Kaladin had stolen in those span reeds, they could hopefully make the device function. She'd have to coach Kaladin through installing it all, and the rubies would be smaller than the ones Tomor had built into the device. Would they be able to handle the weight? She'd need to do some calculations but assuming Tomor had used the newer cages that didn't stress the rubies as much, it should work. She rose to go speak to some of the others in the same manner and posture, to hide the importance of her conversation with Tomor. During the second such conference, however, she noticed someone at the doorway. Raboniel. Navani took a deep breath, composing herself and smothering her spike of anxiety. Raboniel would likely be unhappy about what had happened last night. Hopefully, she didn't suspect Navani's part in it. Unfortunately, a guard soon walked into the room, then made straight for Navani. Raboniel didn't fetch an inferior, personally. Navani couldn't banish the anxiety spread that trailed her as she joined the fused at the doorway. Raboniel wore a gown today, though of no cut. Navani recognized loose and formless it felt like what an Alethi woman would wear to bed, though the fused wore it well with her tall figure, it was strangely off-putting to see her in something that seemed more regal than martial. The Fused didn't speak as Navani arrived instead, she turned and walked out of the chamber with a relaxed gait. Navani followed, and they entered the hallway with the murals. Down to the left, the shield surrounding the crystal pillar glowed a soft blue. Your scholars, Raboniel finally noted, do not seem to be making much progress. They were to deliver up to my people Fabriels to test. My scholars are frightened and unnerved. Ancient one, Navani said, it might take weeks before they feel up to true studies again. Yes. And longer, if you continue having them repeat work in an effort to not make progress. She figured that out faster than I anticipated, Navani thought, as the two strolled along the hallway toward the shield. Here, a common singer-soldier in war form was working under the direction of several fused, with a shard blade. They'd known the singers had claimed some blades from the humans they'd fought, but Navani recognized this one. It had belonged to her son, Elokar's blade, Sunraiser. Navani kept her face impassive only with great effort, though the anxiety spren faded and an agony spren arrived instead, an upside-down face carved from stone pressing out from the wall nearby. It betrayed her true emotions. That loss ran deep. Raboniel glanced at it, but said nothing. Navani kept her eyes forward, watching that horrible blade in that awful creature's hand. The warform held the weapon at the ready. It held no gemstone at its pommel. It seemed that the warform didn't have it bonded, or perhaps the summoning mechanism didn't work in the tower, with the protections in place. The warform attacked the shield, and contrary to Navani's expectation, the blade bit into the blue light. The warform carved off a chunk, which evaporated to nothing before it hit the floor, and the shield restored itself just as quickly. The warform tried again, attempting to dig faster. After a few minutes of watching, Navani could tell the effort was futile. The bubble regrew too quickly. Fascinating behavior, wouldn't you say? Raboniel asked Navani. Navani turned toward Raboniel, stealing herself against the memories brought forth by the sight of the sword. She could cry for her child again tonight, as she had done many nights in the past. For now, she would not show these creatures her pain. I have never seen anything like that shield, Lady of Wishes, she said. I couldn't begin to understand how it was created. We could unravel its secrets if we tried together, Raboniel said, instead of wasting our time watching one another for hidden motives. This is true, Ancient One, Navani said. But if you want my cooperation and goodwill, perhaps you shouldn't flaunt in front of me the blade taken from the corpse of my son. Raboniel stiffened. She glanced at the war form with the weapon. I did not know. Didn't she? Or was this another game? Raboniel turned, nodding for Navani to follow as they walked away from the shield. If I might ask, Ancient One, Navani said, why do you give the blades you capture to common soldiers and not keep them yourselves? Raboniel hummed to one of her rhythms, but Navani could never tell them apart. Singers seemed to be able to distinguish one rhythm from another after hearing a short word or a couple of seconds of humming. Some, fused, do keep the blades we capture, Raboniel said, the ones who enjoyed the pain. Now, I fear I must make some changes in how you and your scholars operate. You are distracted, naturally, by preventing them from giving me too much information. I have unconsciously put you in a position where your obvious talents are wasted by foolish politicking. These are the new arrangements. You will work by yourself at my desk in a separate room from the other scholars. Twice a day you may give them written directions, which I will personally vet. That should give you more time for worthwhile pursuits and less for deceit. Navani drew her lips to a line. I think that is unwise, Ancient One, she said. I am accustomed to working directly with my scholars. They are far more efficient when I am personally directing their efforts. I find it difficult to imagine them being less efficient than they are currently, Navani, Raboniel said. We will work this way from now on. It is not a matter I care to debate. Raboniel had a long stride and used it purposely to force Navani to hurry to match her. Upon reaching the scholars' chambers, Raboniel turned left instead of right, entering the room Navani's scholars had been using as a library. Raboniel's desk in this chamber had once belonged to Navani the fused gestured and navani sat as instructed this was going to be inconvenient but that was Raboniel's intent the fused went down on one knee then picked through a box on the floor here she set something on the desk a glass globe yes like the one that had been near the first node navani had activated when we discovered the node operating the field. This was connected to it, Raboniel said. Look closely, what do you see? Navani hesitantly picked up the globe, which was heavier than it appeared. Though it was made of solid glass, she spotted an unusual construction inside, something she hadn't noticed or understood the first time she'd seen one of these. The globe had a pillar rising through the center, It's a reproduction of the crystal pillar room, Navani said, her eyes widening. You don't suppose? That's how the field is created, Raboniel said, tapping the globe with an orange carapace fingernail. It's a type of soul casting. The fabril is persuading the air in a sphere around the pillar to think it is solid glass. That's why cutting off a piece accomplishes nothing. That's incredible, Navani said. An application of the surge I never anticipated. It's not a full transformation, but a half-state, somehow, kept in perpetual stasis, using this globe as a model to mimic. There must be similar globes at the other nodes. Clearly, Navani said. After this one was detached, did it make the shield seem weaker than before? Not that we can tell, Raboniel said. One node must be enough to perpetuate the transformation. Fascinating! Don't get taken in, Navani. She wants you to think like a scholar, not like a queen. She wants you working for her, not against her. That focus was even more difficult to maintain as Raboniel set something else on the table. A small diamond size of Navani's thumb, full of stormlight. But was the hue faintly off? Navani held it up, frowning, turning it over in her fingers. She couldn't tell without a stormlight sphere to compare it to, but it did seem this color was faintly teal. It's not stormlight, is it? she asked. Nor void light? Raboniel hummed a rhythm. Then realizing Navani wouldn't understand, said, no. The third light, I knew it. The moment I learned about void light, I wondered. Three gods, three types of light. Ah, Raboniel said, but this isn't the third light. We call that life light, cultivation's power, distilled. This is something different, something unique. It is the reason I came to this tower. It is a mixing of two, stormlight and lifelight, like, like the sibling is a child of both honor and cultivation, Navani said. Storms. That was what the sibling had meant by their light no longer working. They hadn't been able to make the tower function any longer because something had happened to the tower's light. It came out in barely a trickle, Raboniel said. Something is wrong with the tower, preventing it from flowing. Her rhythm grew more energetic. But this is proof. I have long suspected that there must be a way to mix and change the various forms of light. These three energies are the means by which all surges work, and yet we know so little about them. What could we do with this power if we truly understood it? This tower light is proof that stormlight and lifelight can mix and create something new. Can the same be done with stormlight and void light? Or will that prove impossible, since the two are opposites? Are they, though? Navani asked. Yes, like night and day, or oil and water. But perhaps we can find a way to put them together. If so... It could be a model, perhaps, of our peoples, a way toward unity instead of strife, proof that we, although opposites, can coexist. Navani stared at the tower light sphere, and she felt compelled to correct one thing. Oil and water aren't opposites. Of course they are, Raboniel said. This is a central tenet of philosophy. They cannot mix, but must remain ever separated. Just because something doesn't mix, doesn't make them opposites, Navani said. Sand and water don't mix either, and you wouldn't call them opposites. That's beside the point. Oil and water can mix, if you have an emulsifier. I do not know this word. It's a kind of binding agent, ancient one, Navani said, standing. If her things were still in here? Yes, over at the side of the room, she found a crate holding simple materials for experiments. She made up a vial with some oil and water, adding some stump weight sap extract as a simple emulsifier. She shook the resulting solution and handed it to Raboniel. The fuse took it and held it up, waiting for the oil and water to separate. But of course they didn't. Oil and water mix in nature all the time, Navani said. Sow's milk has fat suspended in it, for example. I have accepted ancient philosophy as fact for too long, I see, Raboniel said. I call myself a scholar, but today I feel a fool. Everyone has holes in their knowledge. There is no shame in ignorance. In any case, Oil and water aren't opposites. I'm not certain what the opposite of water would be, if the word even has meaning when applied to an element. The various forms of light do have opposites, Raboniel said. I am certain of it, yet I must think on what you've shown me. She reached over and tapped the sphere full of tower light. For now, experiment with this light. To keep you focused, I must insist you remain in this room until finished each day, except when accompanied to use the chamber. Very well, Navani said. Though if you want my scholars to actually develop something for you, this idea of them drawing plans and you testing them is foolish. It won't work, at least, not well. Instead, Ancient One... I suggest you deliver to us gemstones that can power fabrials that work in the tower. Raboniel hummed for a moment, regarding the emulsion. I will send such gems to your people as proof of my willingness to work together. She turned to go. If you intend to use ciphers to give hidden instructions to your scholars, kindly make them difficult ones. The spren I will use to unravel your true messages do like a challenge. It gives them more variety and existence. Raboniel set a guard at the door, but didn't restrict Navani's access within the room. It was otherwise unoccupied. It held only bookshelves, crates, and the occasional sphere lantern. There were no other exits, but near the rear of the room, Navani found a vein of crystal hidden among the strata. Are you there? She asked, touching it. Yes, the sibling replied. I am closer to death than ever, surrounded by evils on all sides, men and singers alike seeking to abuse me. Don't create a false equivalency, Navani said. My kind might not understand the harm we've done to Spren but the enemy certainly knows the harm they cause in corrupting them. Regardless, I will soon die. Only two nodes remain, and the previous one was discovered so rapidly. More proof that you should be helping us, not them, Navani whispered, peeking through the stacks to see that she hadn't aroused the guard's attention. I need to understand more about how these various forms of light work. I don't think I can explain much, the siblings said. For me, it all simply worked, like a human child can breathe. So I used to make and use light, and then the tones went away, and the light left me. All right, Navani said. We can talk on that more later. For now, you need to tell me where the other nodes are. No, defend them once they are found, sibling, Navani said. If Kaladin Stormblast can't protect a node, no one can. Our goal should be to distract and mislead, to prevent the fused from ever finding them. To do this, I'll need to know where the nodes are. You talk so well, the sibling said. So frustratingly well. You humans always sound so reasonable. It's only later, after the pain, that the truth comes out. Hide it if you wish, Navani said. But you have to know, after watching Kaladin fight for you, that we are severely outmatched. Our sole hope, is to prevent the nodes from being located. If I knew where at least one of them was, I could come up with plots to deflect the enemy's attention. Come up with those plots first, the sibling said. Then talk to me again. Fine, Navani said. She slipped a few books off the shelf to hide what she'd been doing, then walked to her seat. There she began writing down everything she knew about light. 62. Keeper of Forms. Eight years ago. I turned the topaz over in her fingers and attuned tension. A topaz should glow with a calm, deep brown, but this one gave off a wicked orange light like the bright color along the back of her sig's kremling, warning that it was poisonous. Looking closely, Esher and I thought she could make out the spren trapped in it, a pain spren, frantically moving around, though perhaps she imagined the frantic part. The spren was mostly formless when inside the gemstone, having reverted to the misty stormlight that created all of their kind. Still, they couldn't be happy in there. How would she feel if she were locked into a room, unable to explore? You learned this from the humans, Eschenai said, Yes, Venley said. She sat comfortably between two of the elders in the small council room, which was furnished with woven mats and painted banners. Venley wasn't one of the five- the head elders but she seemed to think she belonged among them. Something had happened to her these last few months. Where she'd once been self-indulgent, she now radiated egotism and confidence. She hummed to victory as Eshonai passed the gemstone to one of the elders. Why did you not bring this to us earlier, Venley? Claid asked. The reserved elder took the gemstone next. The humans have been gone for months now. I thought I might be wrong, Venley said to confidence. I decided to see if I could trap a spren on my own. Surely you wouldn't have wanted to be bothered by my fancies, should I have been proved wrong. I hadn't heard of this thing they can do, Clade said to Reconciliation. Do you think you could trap a life spren? If so, we could better choose when we adopt mate form. That would be convenient. Try this stone, Venley said, taking it, then handing it to Vernally next. I think it might be the secret to war form. A dangerous form, Vernally said, but useful. It is not a form of power, Clade said. It is within our rights to claim it. The humans make overtures, Gengna, foremost among them, said to annoyance, a rhythm used to elicit sympathy for a frustrating situation. They act as if we are a nation united, not a group of squabbling families. I wish we could present to them a stronger face. They have accomplished so much during our centuries apart, while we remember so little. Pardon, elders, Eshenai said to reconciliation, but they have advantages we do not. A much larger population, ancient devices to create metals, a land more sheltered from the storms. She'd recently returned from her latest exploration efforts, which the elders now fully supported. She'd sought to circumvent the human trading post, then find their home. She'd attuned disappointment more than once. Every place she thought she'd find the humans had been empty. They'd found packs of wild chulls, and even spotted a distant and rare group of reshadium. No humans. Not until she returned to their trading post, which had been transformed into a small fort, built from stone and staffed by soldiers and two scribes, The humans had a message for her there. The human king wished to formalize relations with her people, whom they referred to as Parshendi. She'd returned with the message to find this. Venli, sitting among the elders. Venli, so sure of herself. Venli replicating human techniques that Eshonai, despite spending the most time with them, hadn't heard them discuss. Thank you, Eshonai, Gengna said to appreciation. You have done well on your expedition. Work form had carapace only along the backs of the hands and small ridges, and Gengna's was beginning to whiten at the edges, a sign of her age. She turned to the others and continued. We will need to respond to this offer. The humans expect us to be a nation. Should we form a government like they have? The other families would never follow us, Clade said. They already resent how the humans paid more attention to us. I find the idea of a king distasteful, added hussel to Anxiety. We should not follow them in this. Eshenai hummed to pleading, indicating she wished to speak again. Elders, she said. I think I should visit the other families and show them my maps. What would that accomplish? Venley asked to skepticism. If I show them how much there is to the world, they will understand that we are smaller as a people than we thought. They will want to unite. Venley hummed to amusement. You think they'd simply join with us because they saw maps? Eshenai, you are a delight. We will consider your proposal, Gengna said, then hummed to appreciation, as a dismissal. Eshenai retreated out into the sunlight as the elders asked Venli additional questions about creating gemstones with trapped spren. Eshenai tuned annoyance, then by force, she changed her rhythm to peace instead. She always felt anxious after an extended trip. She wasn't annoyed with her sister, just the general situation. She let herself rove outward to the cracked wall that surrounded the city. She liked this place. It was old, and old things seemed thoughtful to her. She walked along the base of the once wall, passing listeners tending chulls, carrying grain from the fields, Hauling water. Many raised a hand or called to a rhythm when they saw her. She was famous now, unfortunately. She had to stop and chat with several listeners who wanted to ask about her expedition. She suffered the attention with patience. Esh and I had spent years trying to inspire this kind of interest about the outside world. She wouldn't throw away this goodwill now. She managed to extract herself and climbed up a watch post along the wall. From it, she could see listeners from other families moving about on the plains, or driving their hogs past the perimeter of the city. There are more of them about than usual, she thought. One of the other families might be preparing an assault on the city. Would they be so bold? So soon after the humans had come and changed the world? Yes, they would be. Eshonai's own family had been that bold after all. The others might assume Eshonai's people were getting secrets, or special trade goods, from the humans. They would want to put themselves into a position to receive the humans' blessings instead. Eshonai needed to go to them and explain. Why fight, when there was so much more out there to experience? Why squabble over these old, broken-down cities? They could be building new ones, as the humans did. She attuned determination. Then she attuned right back to anxiety, as she saw a figure walking distractedly along the base of the wall. Eshenai's mother wore a loose brown robe, dull against the femaline's gorgeous red and black skin patterns. Eshenai climbed down and ran over. Mother? Ah her mother said to anxiety. I know you. Can you perhaps help me? I seem to find myself in an odd situation. Eshonai took her mother by the arm. Mother. Yes. Yes, I'm your mother. You are Eshonai. The female looked around, then she leaned in. Can you tell me how I arrived here, Esher and I, I don't seem to remember. You were going to wait for me to get home, Eshonai I said, with food. I was? Why didn't I do that then? You must have lost track of time, Eshonai said, to consolation. Let's get you home. Jack Slim hummed determination and refused to be budged, seeming to become more conscious, more herself by the second. Eshenai, she said, we have to confront this. This is not simply me feeling tired, this is something worse. Maybe not, mother, Eshenai said. Maybe it, her mother hummed to the rhythm of the lost. Eshenai trailed off. I must make certain your sister knows the songs, Jackslim said. We may have reached the riddance of my life, Eshonai. Please, come and rest, Eshonai said to peace. Rest is for those with time to spare, dear, her mother said. But let herself be led in the direction of their home. She pulled her robe tight. I can face this. Our ancestors took weakness upon themselves to bring our people into existence. They faced frailty of body and mind. I can face this with grace. I must. Eshenai settled her at home with something to eat. Then Eshenai considered getting out her new maps to show her mother, but hesitated. Jack Slim never did like hearing about Eshenai's travels. It was best not to upset her. Why did it have to happen like this? Escher and I finally got what she wanted out of life. But progress, change, couldn't happen without the passing of storms and the movement of years. Each day forward meant another day of regression for her mother. Time. It was a sadistic master. It made adults of children, then gleefully, relentlessly stole away everything it had given. They were still eating when Venley returned. She always had a hidden smile these days, as if attuning amusement in secret. She set her gemstone, the one with the spren, on the table. They're going to try it, Venley said. They are taking volunteers now. I'm to provide a handful of these gemstones. How did you learn to cut them as humans do? Escher and I asked. It wasn't hard, Venley said. It merely took a little practice. Their mother stared at the gemstone. She wiped her hands with a cloth, then picked it up. Venley, I need you to return to practice. I don't know how much longer I will be suited to being our keeper of songs. Because your mind is giving out, Venley said. Mother, why do you think I've been working so hard to find these new forms? This can help. Esh tuned surprise, glancing at their mother. Help? Jack Slim said. Each form has a different way of thinking, Venley said. That is preserved in the songs. And some were stronger, more resilient to diseases, both physical and mental. So if you were to change to this new form... Her mother attuned consideration. I hadn't realized this, Eshonai said. Mother, you must volunteer. This could be our answer. I've been trying to get the elders to see, Venley said. They want young listeners to try the change first. They will listen to me, Jack Slim said, to determination. It is, after all, my job to speak for them to hear. I will try this form, Venley, And if you have truly accomplished this goal of yours? Well, I once thought that being our new keeper of songs would be your highest calling. I hadn't considered that you might invent a calling with even more honor. Keeper of forms? Eshenai settled back, listening to her sister humming to joy. Only, the beat was off somehow. Faster, more violent. You're imagining things, she told herself. Don't let jealousy consume you, Eshonai. It could easily destroy your family.
1: 63. Practice. I am told that it is not the sand itself, but something that grows upon it, that exhibits the strange properties. One can make more with proper materials and a seed of the original. From Rhythm of War, page 13, undertext. Kaladin thrashed, sweating and trembling, his mind filled with visions of his friends dying. Of rock, frozen in the peaks, of Lopin slain on a distant battlefield, of Teft dying alone, shriveled to bones, his eyes glazed over from repeated use of fire moss. No. Kaladin screamed, no, Kaladin, Syl said. She zipped around his head, filling his eyes with streaks of blue-white light. You're awake, you're all right, Kaladin. He breathed in and out, taking deep lungfuls. The nightmares felt so real, and they lingered, like the scent of blood on your clothing after a battle. He forced himself to his feet and was surprised to find a small bag of glowing gemstones on the room's stone ledge. From Dabit, Sill said. He left them a little earlier, along with some broth, then grabbed the jug to go get water. How did he? Maybe he'd gotten them from the ardent at the monastery, or maybe he'd quietly taken them from somewhere else. Dabit could move around the tower in ways that Kaladin couldn't. People always looked at Kaladin, remembered him. It was the height, he guessed, or maybe it was the way he held himself. He'd never learned to keep his head down properly, even when he'd been a slave. Kaladin shook his head, then did his morning routine, stretches, exercises, then washing as best he could with a cloth and some water. After that, he sought a teft, washing him, then shifting the way the man was lying to help prevent bed sores. That all done, Kaladin knelt beside Teft's bench with the syringe and broth, trying to find solace from his own mind through the calming act of feeding his friend. Sill settled onto the stone bench beside Teft as Kaladin worked, wearing her girlish dress, sitting with her knees pulled up against her chest and her arms wrapped around them. Neither of them spoke for a long while as Kaladin worked. I wish he were awake, Sill fondly whispered. There's something happy about the way Taft is angry, Kaladin nodded. I went to Dalinar, she said, before he left. I asked him if he could make me feel like humans do, sad sometimes. What? Kaladin asked. Why in the Almighty's tenth name would you do something like that? I wanted to feel what you feel, she said. Nobody should have to feel like I do. I'm my own person, Kaladin. I can make decisions for myself. She stared sightlessly past Teft and Caladin. It was in talking to him that I started remembering my old night, like I told you. I think delennar did something. I wanted him to connect me to you. He refused. But I think he somehow connected me to who I was, made me able to remember And hurt again. Kaladin felt helpless. He had never been able to struggle through his own feelings of darkness. How did he help someone else? Tien could do it, he thought. Tien would know what to say. Storms he missed his brother, even after all these years. I think, Syl said, that we Spren have a problem. We think we don't change. You'll hear us say it sometimes. Men change. Singers change. Spren don't. We think that because pieces of us are eternal, we are as well. But pieces of humans are eternal, too. If we can choose, we can change. If we can't change, then choice means nothing. I'm glad I feel this way, to remind me that I haven't always felt the same, been the same. It means that, in coming here to find another night radiant, I was deciding. Not simply doing what I was made to, but doing what I wanted to. Kaladin cocked his head, the syringe full of broth, halfway to Taft's lips. When I'm at my worst, I feel like I can't change. Like I've never changed. That I've always felt this way and always will. When you get like that, Sill said. Let me know, all right. Maybe it will help to talk to me about it. Yeah, all right. And Cal, she said, do the same for me. He nodded, and the two of them fell silent. Caladan wanted to say more. He should have said more. But he felt so tired. Exhaustion spread swirled in the room, though he'd slept half the day. He could see the signs. Or rather, he couldn't ignore them anymore. He was deeply within the grip of battle shock, and the tower being under occupation didn't magically fix that. It made things worse. More fighting, more time alone, more people depending on him. Killing, loneliness, and stress. An unholy triumvirate working together with spears and knives to corner him. Then they just kept. Stabbing. Kaladin, Sill said. He realized he'd been sitting there, not moving for, how long? Storms. He quickly refilled the syringe and lifted it to Taft's lips. The man was stirring again, muttering, and Kaladin could almost make out what he was saying. Something about his parents? Soon the door opened and Dabbit entered. He gave Kaladin a quick salute, then hurried over to the bench near Teft and put something down on the stone. He gestured urgently. What's this? Kaladin asked, then unwrapped the cloth to reveal some kind of fabriel. It looked like a leather bracer, the type Dalinar Navani wore to tell the time. Only the construction was different. It had long leather straps on it and a metal portion, like a handle, They came up and went across the palm. Turning it over, Kaladin found ten rubies in the bracer portion, though they were done. What on Roshar? Kaladin asked. Dabit shrugged. The sibling led you to this, I assume? Dabit nodded. Navani must have sent it, Kaladin said. Syl, what time is it? About a half hour before your meeting with the queen? she said, looking upward toward the sky, occluded behind many feet of stone. Next high storm, Kaladin asked. Not sure, a few days at least. Why? We want to restore the done gemstones I used in that fight with the pursuer. Thanks for the new ones, by the way, Dabbit. We'll need to find a way to hide the others outside to recharge, though. Dabbit patted his chest. He'd do it. You seem to be doing better these days, Kaladin said, settling down to finish feeding Teft. Dabit shrugged. Wanna share your secret? Kaladin asked. Dabit sat on the floor and put his hands in his lap. So Kaladin went back to his work. It proved surprisingly tiring as he had to forcibly keep his attention from wandering to his nightmares. He was glad when, upon finishing, Syl told him the time had arrived for his check-in with Navani. He walked to the side of the room, pressed his hand against the crystal vein, and waited for her to speak in his mind. Hi, Marshal, she said a few minutes later. Here, he replied. But since I was on my way to becoming a full-time surgeon, I'm not sure I still have that rank. I'm reinstating you. I managed to have one of my engineers sneak out a Fabriel you might find useful. The sibling should be able to guide you to it. I've got it already, Kaladin said though I have no idea what it's supposed to do. It's a personal lift, meant to levitate you up and down long distances, to help you travel the height of the tower. Interesting, he said, glancing at the device laid out on the stone bench. Though I'm not one for technology brightness, pardon, but I barely know how to turn on a heating fab You'll need to learn quickly then, Navani said as you'll need to replace the rubies in the fabrile with the void spren ones from the span reeds you stole. We'll need all twelve pairs. Do you see a map in with the device? Just a moment, he said, digging in the sack and pulling out a small folded map. It led to a place on the twentieth floor, judging by the glyphs. I've got it. I should be able to reach this place. The enemy isn't guarding the upper floors. Excellent. There are weights in a shaft up there where you'll need to install the other halves of those rubies. A mechanism on the fabrile bracer will drop one of those weights, and that force will transfer through the bracer. You'll be pulled in whatever direction you've pointed the device. By my arm? Kaladin asked. That doesn't sound comfortable. It isn't. My engineer has been trying to fix that. There is a strap that winds around your arm and braces against your shoulder, which he thinks might help. All right, he said. It was something to do, at least. But fabrials? He'd always considered them toys for rich people, though he supposed that was becoming less and less the case. Breeding projects were creating livestock with larger and larger ruby gem hearts, and fabrial creation methods were spreading. It seemed every third room had a heating fabrile these days, and span reeds were cheap enough that even the enlisted men could afford to pay to send messages via one. Navani coached him through replacing the rubies. Fortunately, the case of span reeds he'd stolen included a few small tools for undoing casings. It wasn't any more difficult than replacing the buckles on a leather jerkin. Once it was done, he and Syl ventured out, sneaking up nine floors. He didn't use any stormlight. He didn't have enough to waste. Besides, it felt good to work his body. On the 20th floor, the garnet light led him to the location the map had described. Inside, he found the weights and the shaft. And Navani walked him through installing the matching rubies. He began to grasp how the device worked. The big weights were more than heavy enough to lift a man. Five of the rubies in his fabrile were connected to these weights, binding them together. The other seven rubies were used to activate and control the weights. The intricate system of pulleys and mechanisms was far more complex than he could understand, but essentially, it allowed him to switch to a different weight when one had dropped all the way. He could also slow the weight's fall or stop it completely, modulating how quickly he was being pulled. Each weight should be able to pull you hundreds of feet before running out, Nivani said via a garnet vein on the wall. These shafts plunge all the way down to the aquifers at the base of the mountain. That means you should be able to soar all the way up from the ground floor to the top of the tower using one weight. The bad news is that once all five weights have fallen, the device will be useless until you rewind them. There is a winch in the corner It's an arduous process, I'm afraid. That's annoying, Kaladin said. Yes, it is mildly inconvenient that we have to wind a crank to experience the wonder of making a human being safely levitate hundreds of feet in the air. Pardon, Brightness, but I can usually do it with far less trouble. Which is meaningless right now, isn't it? I suppose it is, he said. He looked at the fabrial now attached to his left arm, with the straps winding around all the way to his shoulder. It was a little constrictive, but otherwise fit quite well. So I point it where I want to go, activate it, and I'll get pulled that way? Yes, but we made the device so that it won't move if you let go. It was too dangerous otherwise. See the pressure spring across your palm? Ease off that, and the brake on the line will activate, do you see? Yes, Kaladin said, making a fist around the bar. It had a separate metal portion wrapped around it on one side with a spring underneath. So the harder he squeezed, the faster the device would pull him. If he let go completely, he'd stop in place. There are two steps to the Fabriel's use. First you have to turn the device on, conjoining the rubies. The switch you can move with your thumb, that's for this purpose. Once you flip it, your arm will be locked into its current orientation and won't be able to move the bracer in any direction except forward. The second step is to start dropping a weight. If a weight falls all the way, swap to the next one using the dial on the back of your wrist. You see it? I do, he said. Once you stop, you'll remain hanging until you disengage the device. But so long as you have another weight that hasn't run out, you can turn the dial to that one, then continue moving upward. Or if you're bold enough, you can disengage the device and fall for a second, while you point it another direction, then engage it again and set it to pull you that way instead. That sounds dangerous, Kaladin said. If I'm up high in the air and need to get over to a balcony or something, I have to drop into freefall for a bit to reset the direction of the device so it can pull me laterally instead of up and down? Yes, unfortunately. The engineer who created this has grand and lofty ideas, but not much practical sense. But it's better than nothing, High Marshal, and it's the best I can do for you right now. Kaladin took a deep breath. Understood. I'm sorry if I sounded ungrateful, Brightness. It's been a rough few days. I'm glad for the help. I'll familiarize myself with it. Excellent. You shouldn't have to worry about the void light and the gemstones running out through practice. Conjoined rubies don't use much energy to maintain their connection. But they will run out naturally over time. You'll have to figure out what to do about that when it happens. For now, I'm hoping the sibling will soon trust me enough to tell me where to find the remaining nodes. Once I have that information, I can devise a plan to protect them, perhaps by distracting the enemy's search toward a different region of the tower. It's vital that you keep that shield in place as long as possible to give me time to figure out what is wrong with the light in the tower and its defenses. Any movement there? Kaladin asked. No, but I'm currently focused on filling holes in my understanding. Once I have the proper fundamentals on stormlight and void light, I hope I'll make more rapid progress. Understood, Kaladin said. I'll contact you again in a few hours if you can make time to discuss my experience with this device. Thank you. He stepped away from the wall. Sill stood in the air beside him, inspecting the fabrile. So, Kaladin asked her, what do you think? I think you're going to look extremely silly using it. I can't wait. He walked out to a nearby hallway. Up here on the 20th floor, he should be safe practicing in the open, assuming he stayed away from the atrium. He walked the length of the hallway, setting out amethysts to light the way. Then he stood at one end, looking down the line of lights. The fabrile left his fingers free, but that bar in the center of his hand would interfere with fighting. He'd have to one hand his spear, as if he were fighting with a shield. We're going to try it here, Syl asked, darting over to him. Isn't it for going up and down? Brightness Navani told me it pulls you in whatever direction you point it, he said. No windrunners always want to go up with their lashings, but the more experience you have, the more you realize you can accomplish far more if you think in three dimensions. He pointed his left hand down the hallway and opened his palm. Then, thinking it wise, he took in a little stormlight. Finally, he used his thumb to flip the little lever and engage the mechanism. Nothing happened. So far so good, he thought, trying to move his hand right or left. It resisted, held in place. Good. He eased his hand into a fist, squeezing the bar across his palm, and was immediately pulled through the corridor. He skidded on his heels and wasn't able to slow himself at all. Those weights really were heavy. Kaladin opened his hand, stopping in place. Because the device was still active, when he lifted his feet off the ground, he stayed in the air. However, this also put an incredible amount of stress on his arm, especially the elbow. Yes, the device in its current state might be too dangerous for anyone without stormlight to use. He put his feet back down and tapped the toggle with his thumb to disengage the device, and his arm immediately dropped free. The weight, when he went to check on it, was hanging a little further down into the shaft. As soon as he disengaged the device, the brakes had locked, holding the weight in place. He went out into the hallway, engaged the device, and gripped the bar firmly. That sent him soaring forward. He tucked up his feet, straining with effort to keep himself otherwise upright. In that moment, difficult though the exercise was, he felt something come alive in him again. The wind in his hair, his body soaring, claiming the sky, albeit in an imperfect way. He found the experience familiar, even intuitive. That lasted right up until the moment when he noticed the quickly approaching far wall, He reacted a little too slowly, first trying to lash himself backward by instinct. He slammed into the wall, hand first, and felt his knuckles crunch. The device continued trying to go forward, crushing his mangled hand further, forcing it to keep the bar compressed. The device held him affixed to the wall until he managed to reach over with his other hand and flip the thumb switch, releasing the mechanism and setting him free. He gasped in pain, sucking the stormlight from a nearby amethyst on the floor. The healing happened slowly, as it had the other day. The pain was acute. He gritted his teeth while he waited, and split skin broken by bones made him bleed on the device, staining its leather. Sill scowled at the pain crawling around the floor. Um, I was wrong. That wasn't particularly funny. Sorry. Kaladin said, eyes watering from the pain. What happened? Bad instincts, he said. Not the device's fault. I just forgot what I was doing. He sat to wait, and he heard the joints popping and the bones grinding as the stormlight re-knit him. He'd come to rely on his near instantaneous healing. This was agony. It was a good five minutes before he shook out his healed hand and stretched it, good as new, other than some lingering phantom pain. Right, he said, I'll want to be more careful. I'm playing with some incredible forces in those weights. At least you didn't break the fabriel, Sill said. Strange as it is to say, it's a lot easier to get you a new hand than a new device. True, he said, standing. He launched himself down the hallway back the way he had come, this time maintaining a careful speed, and slowed himself as he neared the other end. Over the next half hour or so, he crashed a few more times, though never as spectacularly as that first one. He needed to be very careful to point his hand straight down the center of the hallway, or else he'd drift to the side and end up scraping across the wall. He also had to be acutely aware of the device, as it was remarkably easy to flip the activation switch accidentally by brushing his hand against something. He kept practicing and was able to go back and forth for quite a while before the device stopped working. He lurched to a halt mid-flight, hanging in the center of the hallway. He rested his feet on the ground and deactivated the device. The weight he'd been using had hit the bottom. That had lasted him quite a long time, though much of that time had been resetting and moving around. In actual freefall, he'd probably have longer than a few minutes of flight. But if he controlled the weight, using it in short bursts, he could make good use of those minutes. He wouldn't be soaring about fighting heavenly ones in swooping battles with this, but he could get an extra burst of speed in a fight and maybe move in an unexpected direction. Navani intended him to use it as a lift, it would work for that, certainly, and he intended to practice going up and down outside once it was dark. But Kaladin also saw martial applications. All in all, the device worked better than he'd expected. So he walked to the end of the hallway to set up again. More? Sill asked. You have an appointment or something? Kaladin asked. Just a little bored. I could crash into another wall if you like. Only if you promise to be amusing when you do it. What, you want me to break more fingers? No, she zipped around him as a ribbon of light. Breaking your hands isn't very funny. Try a different body part, a funny one. I'm going to stop trying to imagine how to manage that, he said, and get back to work. And how long are we going to be doing this, decidedly unfunny crashing. Until we don't crash, obviously, Kaladin said. I had months to train with my lashings, and longer to prepare for my first fight as a spearman. Judging by how quickly the fused found the first note, I suspect I'll have only a few days to train on this device before I need to use it. When the time came, assuming Navani or the sibling could give him warning, he wanted to be ready. He knew of at least one way to quiet the nightmares, the mounting pressure, and the mental exhaustion. He couldn't do much about his situation or the cracks that were ever widening inside him, but he could stay busy, and in so doing, not let those cracks define him.
0: 64. Personal Reminder The sand originated off-world. It is only one of such amazing wonders that come from other lands. I have recently obtained a chain from the lands of the dead. Said to be able to anchor a person through cognitive anomalies, I fail to see what use it could be to me, as I am unable to leave the Rosharan system. But it is a priceless object, nonetheless. From Rhythm of War, page 13, under text. Yasna had never gone to war oh, she'd been near to war. She'd stayed behind in mobile war camps, she'd walked battlefields, she'd fought and killed, and had been part of the Battle of Thalen Field. But she'd never gone to war. The other monarchs were baffled. Even the soldiers seemed confused as they parted, letting her stride forward among them in her shard plate. Dalinar, though, had understood. Until you stand in those lines, holding your sword and facing down the enemy force, you'll never understand. No book could prepare you, Yasna. So yes, I think you should go. A thousand quotes from noted scholars leaped to her mind. Accounts of what it was like to be in war. She'd read hundreds, some so detailed she'd been able to smell the blood in the air yet they all fled like shadows before sunlight as she reached the front of the coalition armies and looked out at the enemy. Their numbers seemed endless. A fungus on the land ahead, black and white and red, weapons glistening in the sun. Reports said there were about 40,000 singers here. That was a number she could comprehend, could analyze, but her eyes didn't see 40,000. They saw endless ranks. Numbers on a page became meaningless. She hadn't come to fight 40,000. She'd come to fight a tide. On paper, this place was the Drunmu Basin in Emul. It was a vast ocean of shivering grass and towering pile vines. In meetings, The mink had insisted that a battle here favored the coalition side. If they let the enemy retreat to cities and forts, they could hunker down and make for tough shells to crack. Instead, he'd pushed them to a place where they'd feel confident standing in a full battle, as they had a slight advantage in high ground and the sun to their backs. Here they would stand, and the mink could leverage the coalition's greater numbers and skill, to victory. So logically she understood that this was a battle that her forces wanted. In person, she felt overwhelmed by the distance to the enemy, distance she with the others would have to cross under a barrage of enemy arrows and spears. It was hard not to feel small, even in her plate. The horns sounded, ordering the advance and she noted two edge dancers keeping close to her, likely at her uncle's request. Though she'd always imagined battles beginning with a grand charge, her force moved mechanically, shields up in formation at a solid march that the veteran troops maintained as arrows started falling. Running would break the lines, not to mention leave the soldiers winded when they arrived. She winced as the first arrows struck. They fell with an arrhythmic series of snaps, metal on wood, like hail. One bounced off her shoulder and another skimmed her helm. Fortunately, the arrows were soon interrupted, as Azish light cavalry executed a raid on the enemy archers. She heard the hooves, saw the Wind Runners soaring overhead, guarding the horsemen from the air the enemy kept misjudging cavalry, which hadn't been available in significant numbers thousands of years ago. Through it all, the Alethi troops kept marching forward, shields up. It took an excruciatingly long time, but since Yasna's side was the aggressor, the enemy had no impetus to meet them. They maintained their position atop their shallow incline. She could see why the enemy would think it wise to stand here, as Yasna's forces had to make their assault up this hillside. The enemy resolved into a block of figures in carapace and steel armor, holding large shields and sprouting with pikes several lines deep. These singers did not fight like the Parshendi on the Shattered Plains. These were drilled troops, and the fused had adapted quickly to modern warfare. They had a slight myopia when it came to cavalry, true, but they knew far better how to most effectively employ their surge binders. By the time Yasna's block of troops was in position, she felt exhausted from staying at a heightened level of alert during the march. She stopped with the others, grass retreating in a wave before her as if it could sense the coming fight like it sensed a storm. She had ordered her plate to intentionally dull its light, so it looked like that of an ordinary shard-bearer. The enemy would still single her out, but not recognize her as the queen. She would be safer this way. The horns rang out. Yasna started up the last part of the incline at not quite a run. It was too shallow to be called a hill, and if she'd been out on a walk, she wouldn't have remarked much on the slope. But now she felt it with each step. Her plate urged her to move, as did the stormlight she breathed in. But if she ran too far ahead of her block of troops, she could be surrounded. The enemy would have fused and regals hiding among their ranks, waiting to ambush her. Other than the heavenly ones, few fused chose to meet shard bearers in direct combat. Yasna summoned Ivory as a blade, the weapon falling into her waiting gauntlets. Ready, she asked. Yes. She charged the last few feet to the pike block and swept with Ivory. Her job was to break their lines. A full shard bearer could cause entire formations to crumble around her. To their credit, this singer formation did not break. It buckled backward. Pike scraping her armor, she tried to get in close and attack, but it held. Her honor guard, along with those two edge dancers, came in behind to keep her from being surrounded. Nearby, another block of 5,000 soldiers hit the enemy. Grunts and crunches sounded in the air. Holding her blade in a two-handed grip, Yasna swept back and forth, cutting free pike heads and trying to strike inward at the enemy. They moved with unexpected flexibility, singers dancing away, staying out of the range of her sword. This is less effective, Ivory said to her. Our other powers are. Use them? No, I want to know the real feeling of war, Yasna thought. Or as close to it as I can allow myself, in plate with blade. Ever the scholar, Ivory said with a long suffering tone, as Yasna shouldered past some pikes, which were practically useless against her, and managed to ram her blade into the chest of a singer. The singer's eyes burned as she fell, and Yasna ripped the sword around, causing others to curse and shy back. It wasn't only academics that drove her. If she was going to order soldiers into battle, She needed more than descriptions from books. She needed to feel what they felt. And yes, she could use her powers. Soul casting had proven useful to her in fights before. But without Dalinar, she had limited stormlight and wanted to conserve it. She would escape to Shadesmar if things went poorly. She wasn't foolish. Yet this knowledge nagged at her. as She swept through the formation, keeping the enemy busy she couldn't ever truly feel what it was like to be an unfortunate spearman on the front lines. She could hear them shouting as the two forces crashed together. The formation seemed so deliberate, and on the grand scale, they were careful things. Positioned with a kind of terrible momentum that forced the men at the front to fight. So while the block remained firm, the front lines ground against one another, screaming like steel being bent. That was a feeling Yasna would never experience. The weight of a block of soldiers on each side crushing you between them with no possible escape. Still, she wanted to know what she could. She swept around, forcing more singers back but others began prodding her with pikes and spears, shoving her to the side, threatening to trip her. She'd underestimated the effectiveness of those pikes. Yes, they were useless for breaking her armor, but they could maneuver her like a chull being prodded with poles. She stumbled and felt her first true spike of fear. Control it. Instead of trying to right herself, she turned her shoulder toward the enemy turning her off-balance stumble into a rush, crashing out of the enemy ranks near her soldiers. She hadn't killed many of the enemy, but she didn't need to. Their ranks rippled and bowed from her efforts, and her soldiers exploited this. On either side of her, they matched pikes and spears with the enemy, the front row of her soldiers rotating to the back line of the block every ten minutes under the careful orders of the rank commander. Engulfed by the sounds of war, Yasna turned toward the enemy, and her honor guard formed up behind her. Then, sweat trickling down her brow, she charged in again. This time when the enemy parted around her, they revealed a hulking creature hidden in their ranks, effused with carapace that grew into large, axe-like protrusions around his hands, one of the magnified ones. Fused with the surge of progression, which let them grow carapace with extreme precision and speed. The regular soldiers on both sides kept their distance, forming a pocket of space around these two. Yasna resisted using her powers. With her shards, she should be evenly matched against this creature, and her powers would quickly reveal who she was, as there were no other surge binders in the coalition army who had their own plate. There is another reason you fight, Ivory said, challenging her. Yes, there was. Instead of confronting that, Yasna threw herself into the duel, stormlight raging in her veins. She sheared free one of the fused's axe hands, but the other slammed into her and sent her sprawling. She shook her head, resummoning her blade and sweeping upward as the fused rammed its hand down. She cut off the axe, but the trunk of the creature's arms slammed against her chest. Carapace grew over her like the roots of a tree, pinning her to the ground. The fused stepped away, snapping the carapace free at its elbow, leaving her immobilized. Then he turned as her honor guard distracted him. Ah, we're getting so much wonderful experience, Ivory said to her. Delightful. Other soldiers came in at Yasna and began ramming thin pikes through her faceplate. One pierced her eye, making her scream. Stormlight healed her, though, and her helm sealed the slit to prevent further attacks. With Stormlight, she didn't need it to breathe anyway. But this, like her quick summoning of her blade, was a concession. It risked revealing what she was. She ripped her hand free of the constricting carapace, then used Ivory as a dagger to cut her way out. She rolled free, tripping singers and kicking at their legs to send them sprawling. But as she came out of her roll, that storming fused lunged in, slamming two axe hands at her head, cracking the plate. The helm howled in pain and annoyance, then lapped up her stormlight to repair itself. Such fun is, Ivory said, but of course, Yasna mustn't use her powers. She wants to play soldier. Yasna growled, going to one knee and punching her fist at the fused's knee, but it overgrew with carapace right before she connected. Her punch didn't even move the creature. Ivory became a short sword in her hand as she slashed at the fused, but this exposed her to another hit in the helm, which laid her flat. She groaned, putting one hand against the rock. Steady stone, a part of her mind thought. Happy and pleased with its life on the plains. No, it would resist her requests to change. Ivory formed as a shield on her arm as the enemy began smashing, blood on her cheek mixed with sweat. Though her eye had healed, the regular soldiers were trying to get at her again, her honor guard doing their best to hold them back. Fine. She reached out to the air, which was stagnant and morose today. Draining stormlight from the gemstones at her waist, she gave it a single command. Change, no begging, as she'd tried when younger, only firmness. The bored air accepted and formed into oil all around them. It rained from the sky in a splash and even appeared in the mouths of fighting soldiers. Her honor guard knew to withdraw at that sign, coughing and stumbling as they stepped back from the fight around her in a ten yard circle. The enemy soldiers remained in place, cursing and coughing. Yasna slammed her fists together, one affixed with steel, the other with flint. Sparks erupted in front of her, and the entire section of the battlefield came alight. The magnified one stumbled in shock, and Yasna leaped at him forming ivory into a needle-like blade that she rammed directly into his chest. Her lunge was on target and pierced the enemy's gem heart. The fused toppled backward, eyes burning like the fires around her. She finished off as many of the enemy soldiers as she could find in the flames. Her helm, transparent as glass from the inside, started to get covered in soot, and soon she had to retreat out of the fire. Her vision was clear enough to see the horror of the nearby singers, as they witnessed a burning shard-bearer explode from the fires, as if from the center of damnation itself. That fear stunned them as she hit their line like a boulder, working death upon the collapsing ranks. Their corpses fell among the gleeful spren that writhed on the battlefield, exulting in the powerful emotions. Fear spren, pain spren anticipation sprang she fought like a butcher hacking kicking throwing bodies into the lines to panic the others making waves that her soldiers exploited at one point something slammed into her from behind and she assumed she'd have to face another fused but it was a dead wind runner dropped from the skies above by a passing heavenly one she left the dead man on the bloody ground and returned to the battle She didn't think of strategy. Strategy was for stuffy tents and calm conversations over wine. She simply killed, striking until her arms were sluggish despite both armor and stormlight. Though her troops rotated, she didn't give herself that luxury. How could she? They were struggling and bleeding in a foreign land, for stakes she promised them were important. If she rested, more of them died. After what seemed like an eternity, she found herself gasping, wiping blood from her helm to see. The helm opened vents on the side, bringing in cool, fresh air, and she stumbled, standing alone on the battlefield, wondering why she'd started breathing again. Running out of stormlight, she thought, numb. She looked down at her gauntleted palm, which was stained with orange singer blood. How had she gotten so much on her? She vaguely remembered fighting another fused, and some regals, and- And her block of troops was marching up toward the center of the battle, on trumpeted orders that echoed in her head. Horn blasts that meant- That meant- Yasna, Ivory said. To the side- see what is. One of the edge dancers moved among the fallen, searching for those they could heal. The second stepped up to Yasna and pressed a large topaz into her hand. He then gestured toward the rear lines. I need to do more, Yasna said. Continue in this state, the edge dancer said, and you will do more harm than good. More soldiers will die to protect you than you will cost the enemy." Do you want that, your majesty? That cut through the numbness, and she turned to where he pointed. Reserves formed up there, among standards proclaiming battle commanders and field medic stations. You need to rest, the edged answer said. Go. She nodded, accepting the wisdom and stumbling away from the battlefield. Her honor guard reduced to half its former size followed her in an exhausted clot. Shoulders slumped, faces ashen. How long had it been? She checked the sun. That can't be, she thought. Not even two hours? The battle had moved away from this region, leaving corpses like fallen branches behind a storm. As she approached, a figure in black broke off from the reserves and hastened through the mess to meet her what was wit doing here he was trailed by a small group of servants as they reached her he snapped his fingers and the servants rushed forward to towel down yasna's armor she dismissed her helm opening her face to the air which felt cold despite emel's heat she left the rest of her armor in place she didn't dare remove it in case enemies came hunting her wit proffered a bowl of fruit. What is this? She asked. Valet service. On the battlefield? A place without much wit, I agree. Or should I say, a place that only exists when wit has failed. Still, I should think I would be welcome to offer a little perspective. She sighed, but didn't object further. Most shard bearers had crews to help them keep fighting. She did need a drink and some more stormlight. She found herself staring, however, at, well, all of it. Wit remained quiet. He was expert at knowing when to do that, though admittedly he rarely employed the knowledge. I've read about it, you know, she eventually said. The feeling you get out there, the focus that you need to adopt to cope with it, to keep moving, simply doing your job. I don't have their training wit. I kept getting distracted or frightened or confused. He tapped her hand. The closed left gauntlet, where she held the edge dancer's topaz. She stared at it, then drew in the light. That made her feel better but not all of her fatigue was physical. I'm not the unstoppable force I imagined myself to be, she said. They know how to deal with shard bearers. I couldn't bring down a fused in a fair fight. There are no fair fights, Yasna, Wit said. There's never been such a thing. The term is a lie used to impose imaginary order on something chaotic. Two men of the same height, age, and weapon will not fight one another fairly, for one will always have the advantage in training, talent, or simple luck. She grunted. Dalinar wouldn't think much of that statement. I know you feel you need to show the soldiers you can fight, Wit said softly. Prove to them, maybe to yourself that you are as capable on a battlefield as Dalinar is becoming with a book. This is good. It breaks down barriers. And there will be those wrong-headed men who would not follow you otherwise. But take care, Yasna. Talented or not, you cannot conjure for yourself a lifetime of experienced butchery through force of will there is no shame in using the powers you have developed. It is not unfair. Or rather, it is no more unfair when the most skilled swordsman on the battlefield falls to a stray arrow. Use what you have. He was right. She sighed, then took a piece of fruit, gripping it delicately between two gauntleted fingers, and took a bite. The cool sweetness, Shocked her. It belonged to another world. It washed away the taste of ash, renewing her mouth and awakening her hunger. She'd grown that numb after just two hours of fighting. Her uncle had, on campaign, fought for hours on end, day after day, and he bore those scars, she supposed. How goes the battle? she asked not sure wit said but the generals were right the enemy is determined to stand here they must think they can win and so let us perpetuate this pitched battle rather than forcing us into temperamental skirmishes so why do you sneer it's not a sneer he said merely my natural charisma coming through he nodded to the side to where a distant hill, small but steep-sided, flashed with light. Thunder cracked the air despite the open sky. Men tried to rush the position and died by the dozens. I think we're coming to the end of traditional battlefield formations, Wit said. They served us well today, and perhaps will for a time yet, Wit said. But not forever. Once upon a time- Military tactics could depend on breaking enemy positions with enough work, enough lives. But what do you do when no rush, no number of brave charges, will claim the position you need? I don't know, she said. But the infantry block has been a stable part of warfare for millennia, Wit. It has adapted with each advance in technology. I don't see it becoming obsolete any time soon. We will see. Do you think your powers are unfair because you slay dozens and they cannot resist? What happens when a single individual can kill tens of thousands in moments? Assuming the enemy will kindly bunch up in a neat little pike block. Things will change rapidly when such powers become common. They're hardly common. I didn't say they were, he said. Yet. She took a drink, and finally thought to order her honor guard to rest. Their captain would send in fresh men. Wit offered to massage her sword hand, but she shook her head. She instead ate another piece of fruit, then some ration sticks he gave her to balance the meal. She accepted a few pouches of spheres as well. But as soon as her fresh honor guard arrived, She marched out in search of a field commander who would know where to best position her. Seven hours later, Yasna tromped across a quiet battlefield, searching for wit. He'd visited her several times during the fighting, but it had been hours since their last encounter. She hiked through the remnants of the battle, feeling an odd solitude. As darkness smothered the land, She could almost pretend the scattered lumps were rock buds, not bodies. The scents, unfortunately, did not go away with the light, and they remained a signal, defiant as any banner, of what had happened here. Blood, the stench of burning bodies. In the end, loss and victory smelled the same. They sounded different, though. Cheers drifted on the wind, human voices, with an edge to them. These weren't cheers of joy, more cheers of relief. She made for a particular beacon of light, the tent with an illuminated set of coalition flags flying at the same height, one for each kingdom. Inside, she'd be welcomed as a hero. When she arrived, however, she didn't feel like entering. So she settled down on a stone outside within sight of the guards, who were wise enough not to run and fetch anyone. She sat for some time and stared out at the battlefield, figuring wit would locate her eventually. Daunting, isn't it? A voice asked from the darkness. She narrowed her eyes and searched around until she found the source. A small man sitting nearby, throwing sparks from his Herdasian spark flicker in the night. Each burst of light illuminated the mink's fingers and face. Yes, Yasna said. Daunting is the right word, more so than I'd anticipated. You made a wise choice, going out there, the mink said. Regardless of what the others said, it's too easy to forget the cost. Not only to the boys who die, but to the ones who live. Every commander should be reminded periodically. How did we do? We broke the core of their strength, he said. Which is what we wanted, though it wasn't a rout. We'll need another battle or two on nearly this scale before I can tell you if we've really won or not. But today was a step forward. Do that often enough, and you'll inevitably cross the finish line. Casualties? Never take casualty reports on the night of the battle, Brightness, he said. Give yourself a little time to enjoy the meal before you look at the bill. You don't seem to be enjoying yourself. Ah, but I am, he said. I'm staring at the open sky and wearing no chains. He stood up, a shadow against the darkness. I'll tell the others I've seen you and that you were well, if you'd rather retreat to your tent. Your wit is there, and unless I misunderstand, something has disturbed him. She gave the mink her thanks and stood. Wit was disturbed? The implications of that harried her as she marched through the front-line war camp to her tent. Inside, Wit sat at her travel table, scribbling furiously. So far, she'd caught him writing in what she thought were five different alien scripts, though he didn't often answer questions about where they had originated. Today, he snapped his notebook closed and plastered a smile on his face. She trusted him, mostly, and he her, mostly. Other aspects of their relationship were more complicated. What is it, Wit? She said. My dear, you should rest before, wit, he sighed, then leaned back in his seat. He was immaculate, as always, with his perfectly styled hair and sharp black suit. For all his talk of frivolity, he knew exactly how to present himself. It was something they'd bonded over. I have failed you, he said. I thought I'd taken all necessary precautions but I found a pen in my writing case that did not work. So, what? Is this a trick, Wit? One played on me, I'm afraid, he said. The pen was not a pen, but a creature designed to appear like a pen. A kremling you'd call it, cleverly grown to the shape of something innocent. She grew cold and stepped forward her plate clinking one of the sleepless he nodded how much do you think it hurt i'm uncertain i don't know when it replaced my real pen and i'm baffled how my protections which are supposed to warn me of entities like this were circumvented then we have to assume they know everything yasna said all of our secrets unfortunately wit said he sighed, then pushed his notebook toward her. I'm writing warnings to those I communicated with. The bright side is that I don't think any of the sleepless are working with odium. Jasna had only recently learned that the sleepless were anything other than a myth. It had taken meeting a friendly one, seeing with her own eyes, that an entity could somehow be made up of thousands of Kremlings working in concert for her to accept their existence. If it's not working for the enemy, then who? she asked. Well, I've written to my contacts among them to ask if it is one of theirs keeping a friendly eye on amiable allies, but... Yasna. I know at least one of them has thrown their lot in with the ghost bloods. Damnation! I believe it is time," Wit said. "That I told you about Sidakar. I know of him," Yasna said. "Oh, you think you do?" He said. "But I've met him several times, on other planets." Yasna. The Ghost Bloods are not a Rosharan organization, and I don't think you appreciate the danger they present.